2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and today we're going to talk about whether reducing our consumption is enough to save the planet or whether we need to do more than just recycle, share stuff, and consume less. We're also going to talk about the upsides and downsides of capitalism. We're going to talk about the potential necessary changes that we need to make to environmental policy And we're going to talk about some misconceptions about human progress. And we're going to do all that with today's guest. I'm here with uh, MIT scientist Andrew McAfee. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. No relation to John, right?
1: Uh, no, I used to kind of um, be upset about that. And now I'm fairly glad. I don't think I share a lot of genes with John McAfee.
2: <laughs> I check in on his Twitter account occasionally, but it's only for fun and wow. because, uh, you know, it's like the, it's like watching a train wreck in real time. Wow.
1: Hopefully this will be div- a different experience.
2: <laughs> well, like me, Andy, you uh, are an optimist. H- how is your, your uh, at least from everything I can tell from from your new book, which we'll be talking about your, your new book, uh, More From Less, and, and um, you're definitely an optimist. How is this current pandemic that we're going through challenging your optimism?
1: Yeah, pandemics are not good times for optimists, right? This is not the time to be exploring all kinds of silver linings are telling people to look on the bright side, we are fighting this really scary, implacable foe that via evolution has figured out this, you know, devilish, this insidious strategy for getting from body to body and is killing some of those bodies in its wake. I am not going to sit here and try to put a happy face on a pandemic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Although what I'll say is, and we're going to get more into your book and and what I like about Uh, about you is I don't know exactly where to place you. There's not a box. Uh, uh,
1: I I often feel that- That's quite a compliment. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I can't tell whether you're a libertarian or a progressive, you're a liberal or a conservative, you're a capitalist or a socialist,
1: a minimalist or a maximalist. That's actually, that's the nicest thing I've heard in a long time, because very often we just, we label somebody as something as a way of categorizing them and dismissing them. Oh, that, you know, that guy's another- frothing at the mouth libertarian or there's another bleeding heart liberal so if you find me a little hard to pin down i think that's that's fascinating and great news
2: well and i think the truth is that you are none of these labels and all of them at the same time there there are ingredients from each of these sort of recipes or ideologies and we could talk about the the dangers behind certain ideologies i think
1: that's fair yeah
2: thank you yeah and so this is a, a listener driven show. But before we dive into our audience's questions, would you please talk about a little bit about what motivated you to write more from less?
1: Yeah, so I am not an environmental scientist. And if you'd asked me a few years ago, if I was going to write about a book about the about the environment, and, and the human relationship with the planet Earth, I would have said, you know, no, that that's not in my sweet spot at all. Until I read this amazing essay published, I think, in 2015 by this wonderful scientist named Jesse Ausubel. And he said, hey, year after year in America, we are now using fewer molecules, fewer resources, less tonnage of stuff to grow the overall economy. And he was clear. He said, look, this is not less tonnage per person, per American. This is less stuff year after year by all Americans put together. And I'm reading this. And I'm like, oh, this this poor guy's mistaken, right? This is not how growth works. This is not right. how economies grow. We grow our population. We grow our economy. Thereby, we grow our prosperity. We get wel- wealthier and aggregate over time. But duh, you need to take more from the earth. You need to take more resources, minerals, metals, fertilizer, water. You need, you need all these molecules to grow an economy year after year. And so I... Looked at the references Ausubel provided. He wrote this lovely essay, really thorough references. And I'm like, this guy's right. And it was weird for me because I study technological progress and how technology changes things. And I didn't think I had that nailed, but I kind of thought I knew the drill. And this dematerialization was not part of my understanding. So getting on top of that and then trying to extend Jesse's work and some other work and figure out why it was happening What's, be, what's the story here? And, and what does this imply for things like growth and capitalism and our relationship with the planet Earth? It, it just was a project I could not walk away from.
2: We're going to dive a lot more into that. I want to hop into some voicemails from our audience real quick. Our first question today is from Mariah in Denver, Colorado.
0: I personally fell into minimalism a few years ago after a cross-country bike tour, and I've been practicing my version of minimalism through my highest value of environmental conservation and zero-waste living. I can tell you both care for the environment through your podcast, and I would love to hear a podcast dedicated to environment and hear your take on how to practice minimalism through this lens.
2: So Andy, it sounds to me like Mariah is asking this question about minimalism. Let, let me explain to you. When, when Ryan and I talk about minimalism as the minimalist, it's, it's sort of this this idea of, of a lifestyle uh, of thriving with less. You know, The average American household has somewhere around 300,000 items in it. And wow. while many of those are essential, some of them are non-essential and most of them are actually junk and we like to delineate between those three categories essential items things we truly need non-essential things are things that that probably add value to our life but we get by without them and so we do want them they augment or enhance our experience of life and then of course most of those things are the junk the things we hold on to just in case we might need them someday in some non-existent hypothetical future and and so um, I didn't I didn't stumble across minimalism as a, as a as a means to save the environment, but I think one of the beautiful um, one of the beautiful side effects of this or the byproducts of consuming less is, of course, you produce less waste. I I certainly still produce some waste. I, I buy some things that that add value to my life. And sometimes there's waste involved in that. But what I like about your book, Andy, is you talk about how technology and innovation is actually allowing us to produce Even less waste because we're sort of – the the things that we have now, especially with with respect to technology, um, we are – we're using less um, uh,
1: materials to to produce those things than ever before. Yeah, and the central phenomenon of my book, of more from less, is this – Big corner that we've turned, or this weird tipping point that we reached, where we can continue to grow our populations and our economies while taking less from the earth, fewer resources, fewer minerals, all of that. And that's not because all of America suddenly decided to embrace minimalism. Your podcast is not that popular yet. (laughs) We didn't all turn our backs on consumption and prosperity and, you know, Stuff. We we just haven't done that. Now, I'm a devotee of minimalism. I hope that I hope this mantra spreads because as you just pointed out, lots of our stuff doesn't really do anything for us. It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't add to our lives. Great. Have less of that stuff. I think that's fantastic. That will support the trend that's already underway of being able to live our lives and not have to feel like we're suffering or going without and continue to enhance prosperity around the world while at the same time lightening our footprint on the earth, taking better care of our planet. There's this strong intersection with my most recent work with minimalism and with being good to, to this earth that we all live on.
2: Now, didn't, I mean, what, what, the, only, the only problem I have right now when I think about this is I do feel like overconsumption got us here in the first place. And it was irresponsible of, of us. We haven't been good stewards of, of the resources that we have. Are, are you saying that, that innovation and technology allows us to be better stewards of, of those resources?
1: It it absolutely does. It's not the whole story, but it's a critically important part of the story. And I just want to agree violently with you that for a long time, we were not good stewards of the planet that that we have swarmed all over. And I'm intensely grateful. We're, We're one day away as we record this podcast from the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Earth Day happened on April 22, 1970 for the first time. I am intensely grateful to Earth Day and the modern environmental movement that came out of it because they they grabbed our societies and our governments and the business sector by the lapels and shook them and said, we got to stop this. We are not being good stewards of the earth. And they said a couple of things things that, that were incredibly important and profound. One of them was, we have to stop polluting. And it's incredibly hard for us 50 years later to, to go back to 1970. But the consensus in a lot of places was, hey, man, pollution is a price we pay for economic growth and prosperity. Mm. And during debates about the Clean Air Clean Air Act, one member of Congress said, there's a mayor in my district who said it beautifully. He said, if you want this town to grow, it has to stink. So a lot of us walked around thinking, yeah, you know, our, our throats are scratchy. Our eyes are a little puffy. But, you know, we're driving nice cars and we're putting more stuff in our houses. So that's a trade-off that we're willing to make. And the Earth Day protests and the environmental movement said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to tolerate that. You have to stop polluting the air and the skies and the land and this planet that we live on. So we got the EPA in 1970. We put real teeth in the Clean Air Act in 1970. We passed the Clean Water Act in 1972. And then, you know, when I do my chef's kiss, mwah, it happened in 1990 when a bunch of kind of libertarian conservative economists and a bunch of tree huggers got hmm. together and, and put together a cap and trade system for atmospheric pollution. And we've all kind of heard about cap and trade. The way it works is the government sets the cap, the maximum amount of pollution that you can allow, and then says to all the companies in these polluting industries like electricity generation, you guys can go ahead and trade with each other for the right to pollute. And that sounds deeply bizarre, right? We don't want Mm -hmm. pollution, let alone buying and selling the right to pollute. But the insight was spectacular. And it was that some emitters will have an easier job reducing their emissions and some will have a harder job. What we care about is the overall reduction in the emissions. We don't care if one is comparatively dirty and one is comparatively clean. That's a second order consideration. We want that overall cap to come down. And the right way to have the cap come down quickly is if we allow the trading to happen because markets are just great at finding out who should be producing what, including pollution, it turns out. So cap and trade for sulfur dioxide and lots of other atmospheric pollutants has been this ridiculous success over the past 30 years in the country. Our atmo- our atmosphere is so much cleaner than it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Our lungs are so much more uh, healthy as a result. And the overall cost of reducing those emissions is something like a third or a fifth of the original estimates. So I'm I'm intensely grateful to the Earth Day protesters and the environmental movement because they said, guys, we're not gonna we're not gonna sit here as voters, as citizens, and tolerate the pollution. Then they helped come up with really smart ways to make it go down. And then the other thing they did was say, Uh, We have to stop killing the creatures that we share the planet with. Just this fundamental aspect of stewardship, right? Don't kill the other creatures. (laughs) We were failing that in a huge way. We drove the passenger pigeon extinct by 1914. This was a bird in the 19th century that flocked in, in groups so dense that they could blot out the sun. And we made it extinct early in the 19th century. We damn near drove the North American bison out of existence. And over the course of the 20th century, we had these industrial era ships and we went after whales in all the oceans of the world with this kind of wanton glee. And we almost wiped out many, many different species of whale. We did it not because they had any magic ingredient that was so rare we couldn't find it anyplace else. We made margarine and lubricants out of the world's whales. I mean, this, right. this is a crime, right? This is a moral crime. And it would have been compounded if we'd driven more of these creatures extinct. And so the Earth Day movement said, we're not not going to allow this. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. We had a whale moratorium, which was passed, I believe, in the early 1970s. Most countries around the world have signed up for it. And you asked earlier what I'm optimistic about. Man, one of the things that makes me really optimistic is these things work. And a phrase that I first heard from Stuart Brand is nature bats last. And if we can just kind of get the hell out of the way, give the oceans back to the whales, fence off oceans and national parks and seasons of the year from hunting and exploitation, these animals will come back. We, we Once we drive them to extinction, we don't have the toolkit yet to bring them back. But wow, if we can just leave them alone and stop doing this wanton destruction, the species will come back. There are we, we believe that there were about 500 individual blue whales left in the world's southern oceans in the early 1970s. I think there are, depending on which estimate you believe, between 10 or 20,000 or even more of these animals in the mm. world's southern oceans right now. Man, we can win these battles, and that's what environmentalism taught me. We have to fight these battles, and we have to win these battles. Now, after, you know, I can't praise them enough for that, but we have to say a couple things I think that they got wrong. And one of them, one aspect of the environmental movement that I'm not on board with is the degrowth wing of the party, or this notion that we have to reduce not just the amount of stuff that we have, minimalism is fantastic, but the overall size of the economy. That's the only way that we're going to be able to take better care of the earth is if we humans decide to renounce higher levels of prosperity, higher levels of income and the things that come along with that. I am not on board for that, for the really simple reason that I don't. I think the evidence shows that degrowth is necessary. America has not embraced degrowth over the past half a century. And we haven't outsourced all of our pollution and all of our environmental devastation. However, our footprint on the planet is now going down even as growth continues. So I guess, you know, if, if we're trying to hang a label on me, I might be a pro-growth minimalist is a way to say it. Well, I, I think I am
2: too, as long as it's the right kind of growth, right? There are two types of growth. You know, I can go to the gym and build a muscle, and, and that, that is good growth. I can also ha- get a tumor, and and that's, a cancerous tumor is, is a bad growth. And it sounds to me like what you're trying to delineate here is there is such thing as good growth, responsible growth could maybe be another way to, yeah. to describe it. And yeah. Yeah. responsible growth.
1: Let me pick up on that, because I think responsible is a beautiful adjective here. Responsible growth in, in my world, and what what I learned writing More From Less, responsible growth entails two deeply important things. First of all, we have to deal with the bad side effect of growth, of stuff, of, of, of generating an economy. And the bad side effect is pollution. Mm-hmm. And so if we grow and we let things stink and we let the water get contaminated, that is deeply irresponsible growth. But what I think we have learned is how to have growth that is responsible in that way. I'll say it again. Pollution levels are down. The air is so much cleaner. The air over London, for example, is much, much cleaner than it was in 1700. This just blew my mind. Oh, wow when I heard about it for the first time. And by the way, if you think I'm, I'm nuts or if you don't believe me, you can read my book or go to Our World in Data, which is one of the great websites that's ever been created because it's exactly what it says just a bunch of data. And you can go double check almost all the claims that I'm making here. And there's a I'll great put graph- I'll link to that, that
2: in the show notes.
1: Yeah, yeah, please do. There's a great graph of air pollution over London that I think starts in 1700. And where it is right now, is so much lower. We need to be clear, even before the COVID uh, recession kicked in and and the skies got so much cleaner because we're not driving anywhere, even before then, we're doing so much better than we've been doing for hundreds of years. So the first aspect to me of responsible growth is growth with lower pollution over time. The second aspect is to say, look, there are some things that we are not going to use as raw materials to fuel our growth. You know, the process of production is converting raw materials into finished goods. The idea that whales were an okay raw material to me is like wrong, 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 wrong. Totally. Totally. Let's not have endangered animals as, as inputs, as raw materials for our productive processes. Let's not chop down vulnerable forests if we have an alternative. Let's take ecosystems and creatures and species and put them outside of this, this relentless engine of capitalism and markets that we have. And I will sit here and cheerlead all day for capitalism and markets, because I think they make humanity more prosperous and they solve our problems over time. I am never going to cheerlead for putting whales into the capitalist system. That's just a mistake. Mm. So if we can do these two things, if we can deal with the bad side effects of growth, which is primarily pollution, and we can we can call time out or, or, or call BS on having vulnerable ecosystems and creatures be an input to growth and input to production, man... If we do both those things and that's really important homework, I kind of sit back and get uh, confident that we're going to do the right thing by the planet.
2: You know, what I like about your book is you are at times you're you're both pro market and pro regulation. These two things. that (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's almost as though there is a, a tension here, but it's a necessary tension
1: it's a completely necessary tension and and my view is not that wacky actually if you go look at any good econ 101 textbook and, and econ 101 is a phrase that I use all the time to describe people who have you know a decent introductory grounding a solid grounding in economics what you will learn in your econ 101 textbook in the first couple chapters is markets are awesome right markets are the best things that we humans have ever come up with mm-hmm. to produce goods and services and get them to the get, and allocate them correctly not to say markets are perfect right like I don't want to be come across as some kind of fundamentalist but markets are really good at producing and allocating things about chapter you know three or four in your econ 101 textbook you switch over from extolling markets to examining their failure modes mm-hmm. and the first one that you typically learn about is an externality and in particular a negative externality which is the kind of externality you don't want which is very simply uh, Josh if you and I decide to engage in a transaction, in most cases, the rest of the world doesn't care about it. If you and I engage in a transaction that makes things worse for other people somehow who are not part of that transaction, that's a negative externality. In I, almost every good econ 101 textbook that I've come across, exhibit A of your negative externality is pollution. If you buy from my factory, but my factory pollutes, then the people in my neighborhood, whether or not they're buying my stuff, are suffering from it. We, we, we can't. We can't deal with negative. We can't allow negative externalities. And here's the key point. Markets left to their own devices typically don't deal with them, don't solve them. So this is when you know every decent economist that I know acknowledges a proper role for government to deal with negative externalities. So that's why I, the libertarian label very often uh, sits, sits uncomfortably with me. I just have two much of an awareness of negative externalities and how bad they are and how critically important they are to deal with. And as much as I love markets, I don't think they naturally do a good job of dealing with pollution and pollution and other negative externalities.
2: We're seeing this right now play out in real time, as you mentioned with this pandemic. The air is much cleaner. I'm here in, in Los Angeles right now, and I've I've never ever seen it even remotely close to this. It, it's yeah, it's like I live in a different place. It's like I moved somewhere else. And, yeah, it's and weird, to- isn't it? It, it is. It's totally weird. But it, it, to me, this is the experiment. This this is showing you right now that if we innovate uh, enough, if we're 100 percent electric cars at this point, this is Amen, what the man. air would look like right
1: now. That's right. That's right. And so th- this is a really key point, because I was just talking about the victories of the past half century, of the environmental movement, the air in L.A., Holy Toledo. Is it cleaner than it was in 1970? I mean, before the pandemic kicked Mm -hmm. in the air Mm -hmm. in LA was so much cleaner than it was in 1970. We don't have killer smogs anymore. We don't have smog alerts on the morning drive time radio anymore. However, it's really important to say this clearly. Pollution is still too high. And this yeah. is one of the things we're learning with the pandemic is if when all these internal combustion engines leave the highways, mm-hmm. the air gets a lot cleaner in Boston and LA and all these different cities. That tells me that we've a, 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 we've come so far. We've got a long way to go still. If we really want to live on a cleaner earth and take better care of us and our planet, there's a lot more work. I think we know the path ahead. And like you just said, It's to go through this energy transition to electrify the fleet so that we're not putting out all these particulates all the time. And in my view, all that electricity would be generated by nuclear power plants all over the world. That's the utopian sci-fi future that I want to live in. Well, Mariah,
2: thank you so much for your question. I'm going to send you a copy of Andy's book, More From Less. I hope you find a lot of value in that. And I want to move on uh, really quickly to our lightning round. Now, this is where we answer our audience's text messages. You can text us your questions, 937-202-4654. And those texts actually go straight to Ryan's and, and my phones. We answer as many as we can. We, we don't answer every question, but occasionally we answer them on air here on the podcast. Now, Andy, during the lightning round, uh, we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. Wow. Really, we no, I'm, I, we maunder on a bit, and then Sean tweezes out something, makes it tweetable and beautiful in in post. So, uh, our question today is from Sabi. Sabi wants to know. How do we rewire people's brains so they don't impulsively buy dumb stuff? Now, this is obviously a, a contributing factor, Andy, to a lot of – this is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Irresponsible growth, a lot of that is us uh, uh, corporations or even individuals uh, – touting a message of, of more, more, more. You are incomplete and thus you need to purchase my product or service and therefore yep. you will be complete as soon as you do that. Now, we, we've all tried this. We've all bought things to be happy. And of course, in the moment, we get the, the momentary burst of pleasure or dopamine. But long term, um, the, the, the pleasure fades. And in yep. fact, the object of our consumption and, and joy becomes the object of our discontent on a long enough timeline. <laughs> And yep. so uh, my, my pithy answer is just minimize carefully that which is essential for the next person may be non-essential for you. And I think that's that, that we want to keep that in mind as well. We we see these advertisements for the thing, the, the widget, the car, the shirt, whatever. And it looks appropriate on the mannequin or in the advertisement. But the question is, is that appropriate for you? And and, and I, I wonder how you would address Sabi's question here. Um, I mean, of course, we can have regulations, but I, I don't yeah. want to judge people and say you shouldn't buy this this, no, this certain me neither. thing. Yeah, Absolutely because- not. Uh, you In your in your book, in fact, you, you, you were sort of against central planning, especially government central planning. Deep,
1: deeply, virulently. Again, I sh- actually, that's not the adverb you should use in this day and age, right? Mm. <laughs> I am adamantly against central planning. I'm, I'm not virus-like about anything.
2: Well, let's let, let's talk about this question. Let, let's maybe dive a little bit a little bit deeper here. Um, we don't want to stop people from from buying stuff. Uh, quite often, we want to open their eyes, and that's the difference between I think minimalism. I, I don't think of minimalism as an ideology. Uh, similar, so it's not asceticism. Yeah, no, no, it, it, absolutely not. And, and in yeah. fact, you know, um, and and it's not even you know stoicism, uh, which yeah. I I think ver- lines uh, aligns quite closely to. To minimalism um yeah. it, it's almost stoicism for your stuff in, in a way um <laughs> yeah there you go and um and, and i have a friend who wrote a book called Suffocation. you know we've all been suffocated by by our stuff and 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 so now here we are um Yes. a lot of us are impulsively buying dumb stuff. And I can only say that because I am a a former hoarder myself. Um, I I had the big suburban house with over 300,000 items in it. And and at some point I realized I wasn't going to get the the joy from it. And so I'm not proselytizing. What I'm trying to do is share a recipe. And I get that from your book as well. You're not making a specific uh, prescription, here are the hundred things you must do, but there are some observations and then um, a- allowing people to make
1: decisions on their own. So let me give a really short answer to this excellent question. And then a little bit longer one, my short answer is just repeat the mantra stuff does not make you happy. Mm. And, and Josh, I know that's your whole reason for, for setting this up and for getting these ideas out there into the world. We just need to keep repeating it to ourselves. And at that moment of purchase, when we're going for that dopamine hitch. If that mantra kicks in, no, actually, stuff does not make us happy. And, and the more often I repeat that to myself, the more it sinks in. Now, let me give you a little bit longer answer to that question, which is the answer that I learned from uh, Danny Kahneman, who's just, you know, he's he's a living legend. Yes. He's the first non-economist to win the Nobel Prize in economics. He's a psychologist by training. And I've met Danny. I've talked to him a couple of times. He's just this, like, he's like Yoda. He's just this deeply wise Thoughtful guy. The, the force mm-hmm. is like is super with Danny Kahneman, and we invited him to one of our conferences. And my co-author Eric Brignolese was interviewing him on stage, and he said, "Danny, I know you've been doing some happiness research. What, what can you tell us about it?" And uh, Kahneman said, "When I was um, a kid or a young man in Israel, we got air conditioning for the very first time, which, like you can imagine, is a big deal in Israel, right?" Mm-hmm. And Kahneman said, when, "Man, when that when that AC unit kicked on for the first time, it was like." that like the skies had parted and heaven had opened up. And it was just the most amazing feeling of not sweltering in, you know, summer in Israel. And he said, it made me deeply happy. And then he said, does air conditioning still make me deeply happy? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm not sweltering, but do I break out in this crazy smile? Like I did the first time the AC unit kicked on. And he's like, no, And so I'm in the audience thinking he's just telling us a story about how we get accustomed to things and we're constantly, you know, we're wired to want more and happiness is elusive and all that. And I was kind of like, yeah, I get it, but it's kind of a bummer. And then Kahneman said, now think about your um, Friday evening poker game. He said, you can have that Friday evening poker game for 30 years with the same group of friends, and you will look forward to the Friday evening poker game in the 30th year as much as you did during the first year and i'm sitting in the audience it was like somebody had dropped a a brick on my head of knowledge Mm. and i'm like that is actually completely correct because when i think about the times that that, you know i looked forward to it ain't the shopping trip it's it's not you know clicking on the the purchase button it's oh man i've got some friends coming over got these i got new friends and old friends i got this crowd that i'm into and we're just going to hang out we're going to go do something like that, man. Happiness is the right word for that feeling. So, what 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 Kahneman taught me, you know, the mantra is stuff doesn't make you happy. Repeated social engagements with your friends that does make you happy. Go do that.
2: Right, right, and and
1: I think that you know,
2: if I, I just talked to a, a stoic philosopher who was on the podcast, and he um, his name's William Irvine, and he's written some really great books on on stoicism. And and what I learned is that you know if you dropped a Stoic into you know fr- from you know twenty five hundred years ago or whatever you drop them into twenty twenty, even amid the the pandemic they they would be so amazed and they would look around at so many people who are so discontented, and 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 say oh wow you you're you're a really troubled person if you're not able to be contented. Uh, with, with all of this you know, sort of progress and, and all, of the, uh, all, all of the benefits of, of modern life, then uh, maybe you're telling yourself the wrong story. And I, I think that story is that we're constantly pursuing things to make us happy. And what you're illustrating there is that our experiences uh, have a much better return on investment than buying the next widget.
1: In a particular category of experience, there are several categories of experience that, that will bring you that, re- that deep happiness. One of them is, again, it's the Friday night poker game. It's dinner parties with your friends. It's going for a walk together. We humans are such an intensely social species that we almost forget that. It's almost, it, 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 it goes beneath the um, surface, but mm-hmm. we're the most intensely social species in many ways on the planet. And cutting ourselves off from that—it's really easy to do because there's there are screens, there are things we're super busy. We've got jobs, we've got all kinds of reasons not to do that stuff. Man, prioritizing that, like having a group of friends, investing in them, spending time with them, just hanging out—that if that—that's one of the surest ways I can think of to be happier.
2: Yeah, you're reminding me of a one of my favorite jokes from a, a comedy special recently, Ronnie Chang has this great comedy special. And one of his bits is, uh, it, when I came to America, it seemed like Americans were having a competition to see how many screens they could get between their face <laughs> and the wall. <laughs> it, and it's so true. I mean, I, 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 I see it all, all the time. And I am I, I am myself a, a victim with not being intentional. You've got the TV on the wall and the iPhone in the hand and The the Kindle or the tablet or or the people have the Apple watch and everything else is like right there. Um, And and, um, I'm pacifying myself, but that's not happiness. Pacification is 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 different. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I
1: will I will defend technology all day, every day. I write books about it. I've devoted my career to trying to understand. Where this tech is taking us and in general i think it's taking us to a better place i really really do but you bring up something these screens these devices are incredibly powerful things and they have improved humanity and if you don't believe that go to a part of the world that doesn't have even basic ability to communicate or share knowledge or see what the world is up to and then watch what happens when they get these phones get smartphones for the first time and there's not a dry eye in the house, right? So I will defend these things all day, every day. However, they are designed to be addictive. Let's let's not paper over that, right? That's mm. what these things do. And okay, so's an Oreo cookie, so's a hot fudge sundae, so's heroin. Lots of things are designed to be addictive. Our homework is not to just never, eat, I'm not advocating heroin, right? But go have an <laughs> Oreo cookie if you want one, d- d- go have a phone, go have an Apple watch, go do these things and don't deny them to other people. However, you're just dealing with another addictive device. Part of our homework is thinking people is to rise above that and, and not, not just like pacify, not just be, uh, be a recipient and I and, uh, um a passive recipient of what these screens, what these devices want us to do. So one of the most helpful things that I've done is when I first get up in the morning, I have a no screens for 15 minute rule and I drink my espresso and I kind of walk around and stretch and do stuff like that. And I find that's really helpful because if I don't do that, I'm looking at a screen, you know, 30 seconds after I wake up in the morning and I think that's a bad way to go. Again, as much as I love these devices and these technologies.
2: All right, before we get into our added value segment and our listener tips today, it looks like we got a bunch more surprise questions this week. Are smartphones bad for the planet? Who's to blame for most of the environmental degradation that we're currently experiencing? Even if the U.S. stops polluting, China and India won't. So what is a real solution? Will the COVID-19 pandemic significantly slow our consumption of junk? Why is the economy based on how much money people spend and what's the alternative? Is recycling actually making a difference or is it merely perceived as a responsible decision for the environment? We're also going to talk about universal basic income versus a negative income tax, plus a bunch more questions for Andrew McAfee. And if you want to hear all that, Check out this week's maximal episode on the minimalist private podcast. That's right. You're currently listening to our weekly minimal episode, but each week, Ryan and I and our guests record an entirely different, much longer maximal episode on the minimalist private podcast. It's just two bucks and it's the most honest way for this podcast to earn an income because we don't believe in advertisements. We think advertisements suck. So we make money only if you find value in and support what we create. By the way, when you subscribe to The Minimalist private podcast, you'll receive a personal link so that our maximal episodes play in your favorite podcast app. That link also grants you access to our entire back catalog of hundreds of private podcast episodes. You can find all the details and all the good stuff over at TheMinimalist.com slash support. By the way, over on that private podcast right now, while we're quarantined, Ryan and I are doing these quarantine conversations Uh, We're calling up friends and friends of the podcast and family members, and we're having these these quick like 12-minute conversations. We're doing it every day on the Minimalist private podcast. Whenever we're not putting out uh, an episode, a regular podcast episode, we're having these little short episodes or these 12-minute conversations about people are coping with, how they're coping with the, the pandemic, how people are sometimes even thriving during the pandemic, and what to expect after this entire crisis has passed us. Where are we going to go from here? We're having these conversations with a bunch of different friends and experts, and I think you'll find a lot of value in those. By the way, those are completely free to the people who support us on Patreon. All right, here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Check them out.
0: Hey, Josh and Ryan. This is Andy from Portland, Oregon. I wanted to call to give you guys a packing tip. So I have done a lot of traveling in my life. I used to travel for work four to five days a week. Um, Since then, now I just travel for fun usually. But one of the best uh, things that I came across to really minimize what I travel with is to pack in advance, to try to pack for my trip a couple days and really lay out my outfits for each day, see what items I can mix and match. Then I put it all in the suitcase and I wait And then two days before the trip, I'll go in and say, what can I remove? What do I not think that I'll need? I find that when I revisit my outfits or my planning, that it's easier for me to take out a couple excess items. I like to consider myself somewhat fashionable. So whether it's um, a bag or a pair of shoes or a shirt, I usually find that I can take out one or two items. This has allowed me to go to China and Russia for three weeks, both for fun and for work, all in a carry-on.
3: Hi, this is Tracy from New Jersey, and I'm responding to Amy's dilemma with the pictures that she had from the passing of her father. This happened to us a few years ago when my husband's parents both died within a, a short span of each other, and we took all of the pictures from their home in order to try to organize them for the family. What worked really well for us is I went through the pictures instead of him because I was more dispassionate about it. Uh, The pictures didn't hold a lot of memories for me and I think he would have agonized over each and every photo. The first thing I did is I separated any photo that didn't have people in it and I got rid of them. My In-laws loved taking pictures of landscapes and flowers and birds, and they were beautiful, but they had no meaning to us at all. I'm sure they gave my in-laws great pleasure, but they didn't hold any meaning for us, so those immediately went. The pictures that were left had people in them, and I sat down with my husband and I said, identify the people so I can write it on the back, and if he didn't know who the people were, the picture went. It obviously, again, held no meaning for him. There were a few that we reached out to his siblings and said, do you know who these people are? And if we could identify them, it went into the keep pile. Then finally we went to the keep pile and we looked for things that were similar. If there were 10 pictures from a party, nine of them probably went. And doing this over a period of about two weeks, we whittled the pictures down about 95%. And the ones that were left We scanned and we made an album, uh, a digital album, and we gave a copy to each of our siblings. This worked really well. It brought up a lot of nice memories and it saved my husband the agony of going through each and every picture.
2: All right, y'all. Thanks again to Andrew McAfee for joining us today. Check out his new book. It's called More from Less. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing. Actually, here's two things going on in the life of the minimalist. First off, if you haven't checked out the minimalist uh, YouTube channel recently, you certainly want to because we have a bunch of different series that our filmmaker Jordan No More has been working on with us. Uh, Not only do we have our Unpacking Minimalism series, which has three episodes out there right, right now, where we take a topic from the podcast and Jordan and other people, he interviews a bunch of different people about this particular topic. So, so far we have done the car we have and we have done uh, the joy. Those are the two most recent ones. The first one was The Wallet as well. So we're three episodes into that. YouTube.com slash the minimalists. Also over there, you can find a new series that we're working on called Let's Talk About Less. This is a video essay series where we talk about a particular topic. And that is coming out in May. So you uh, right now, uh, when, when you're listening to this, you'll be able to check out this new series, Let's Talk About Less. I'll be talking about topics like minimalism and the economy and these video essays where I spend three to ten minutes diving into a particular topic and making my arguments for living a minimalist life with respect to that topic. Also there, you can find three seasons of living room conversations where Ryan and I meet in our living rooms and we answer your questions one question at a time. It's uh, simple advice for simple living. And those videos have been extremely popular. There's three seasons of that right now, 60 videos in total. You can check all those out, youtube.com slash The Minimalist. Also, we're getting ready to go on tour again and we're coming to a city near you. If you want to find all the dates you can head on over to theminimalists.com tour. Of course, we're not going to be touring again until November, but you can check out all the current dates. And if there isn't a city near you, you can sign up for our email list and we will notify you when we are coming to a city that is close to you. You can follow the minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the minimalists. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at the minimalists.com. You can comment on this episode at youtube.com/slash the minimalist if you want our show notes in your inbox sign up for our email list over at the minimalists.com. You'll also receive our simple Sunday emails each week. And for our added value this week. I wanted to check out this uh, you know this album from The Strokes. Sean, I don't know I know you're listening right now, but I don't know if you've listened to this, but I'm going to pull up the album real quick. Bex and I were driving around recently and um we we just drove over to a park that where there were very few people and we were making sure we were continuing social distancing. And, and we were just looking to get out of the house for a bit. And we, we put on the new Strokes album. It's called The New Abnormal. And I was struggling to pick a song from this, but I think we're going to go with the sixth track on the, on the album. It is called At The Door. And uh, The New Abnormal is a perfect way to describe where we're headed right now. We're in a new abnormal, but I think there's going to be a new normal after all of this as well. So let's enjoy this song. It's called At The Door from The Strokes' new album, which is the new abnormal. And if you live here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.
0: I can escape it. Never gonna make it out of this in time.
2: I guess
0: that's just fine.